Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner Smart Podcast today. This is a podcast for lifelong learners where we learn about anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode today for you with Aaron Harris. Aaron Harris describes himself as an architect of experiences. Um, he has he's done all sorts of things from designing churches to working with conferences, um, just all sorts of. He's also an artist. He uh, he paints um, with all different types of of, of of paint variations. It's really some cool stuff. And uh, he's just a person who is super creative, and we wanted to learn about. We learned, wanted to learn from him. And so, without further ado, we're going to join our conversation with Aaron Harris. Well, Aaron, we're so excited to have you join the Learner's Corner podcast today. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm looking, been looking forward to talking to you guys. You know, as we were kind of reading through your bio, one of the things that stood out to me is that, you know, you, you describe yourself as an experienced designer. Tell us a little bit about what that means. So basically what that means is I actually work with my clients to design how they want people to experience them. Um, sometimes I'm evaluating how people experience them and helping them improve that experience. So what I work to design is the overall flow of an interaction. So how people interact with them from social media all the way to their stage or their building or their space. So what are the touch points they have? How would a person um, interact with them online? And then once they were to show up to their event or their building, how would that be consistent? Um, with the signage, how do people move through the space? How do they interact with the content? So I sort of often compare what I do to being a contractor who builds a house. That builder doesn't do every part of the house, but he brings people in to do the foundation, the electrical, the plumbing. I do the same thing. So I would work with people that handle social media, website design, um, graphic design, sign printing companies, artists, sculptors, interior designers, all the way through. So. It's sort of an umbrella sort of description of what we're designing, which is ultimately to help someone have a certain experience and hopefully we succeed in creating that experience that the client wants for them. What's kind of your That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. What's kind of your goal whenever you're designing something? Like what are you trying to do with it? Well, you know, that depends on the project and the client. Because there'll be Generally, have to figure out what I'm looking to try to meet it. But for me personally, what I try to do in every project is to be as excellent as possible, to maximize the money spent, to get as biggest bang, biggest bang you can get for the dollar. Um, try not to be wasteful. Some art, a lot of people's opinion would be considered wasteful. You spend too much on things. I try to minimize that and create things that would actually be effective to communicate something that will improve people's perspective of themselves, of others, or of God. Um, and it's, it's been fairly easy to accomplish that in every project, even with the different client goals as well, because a lot of that can be done subtly. It doesn't have to be in your face. It can just be done in the way I create the project or install it, that kind of thing. So that's how I personally connect myself to it with a goal. That's always closely tied to what is the actual client's goal for what do they want. So, um, But yeah, it's, I enjoy doing that part of it because it allows me to have 
my own creative flair in it, even when I'm working in tight parameters of a client project. How are people? How do how do people overestimate uh, design in a building whenever it comes to experiences? Because I think a lot of times um, we think of of buildings and, and the experiences we're trying to create, and, and so I think at times people overestimate um, a the importance of it, but also they look at it. And they think, you know, hey, if I only had – so tell, talk to us about how, how people can, can overestimate the importance of design in a building. And then to follow that up, how, are, how can people underestimate right. the importance of design? Well, you, this is a challenging question because, to me, design is of ultimate importance. So um, often people are not overestimating. Normally people are underestimating the importance of it. But examples of how people could overestimate it is putting too much money – or attention into the things that don't matter, that are the flashy things that look cool, they think people would like, as opposed to really stepping back and going, what will be the elements of our design that will have the biggest impact for whatever our goal is, or would have the most effect on someone's ability to connect, to be present, to engage with our product, with our brand, with our church, with our event, whatever it is. So. If normally the overestimation doesn't come from the fact they're unwilling to spend money, it's just they put it in the wrong places. So an example would be like when you're coming to a lobby, you don't need the fanciest TVs to project stuff, to show stuff. But you need spaces. The color needs to be correct in the space. It needs to be clean. It needs to be neat. It needs to be streamlined, easy for people to move through easy for people to connect with and feel comfortable to have places that they can sort of land without creating clutter or spots that block traffic flow. But I'll go into clients and they'll spend a lot of money on the technology, which is what I would call the hardwire part of a project. And they forget all of the soft elements of the project. So they're overestimating a aspect of the design. Generally clients and people are underestimating the importance of design across the board in their day-to-day life, in their homes, in the way they dress themselves, and the way they interact with their companies, their clients, their churches, their friends. So I'm generally having to teach people that wait, design is more important than you think, and here's why. Because design is the thing that creates the way we feel about things. And you look at advertising and marketing, most of it is based on interacting with our feelings and our beliefs, which will drive what we do with it. So. Often, when underestimating, people are just going, oh, it's not that important that our building look a certain way or that it be up to date or it be freshly painted or, hey, it's not that big a deal that you can see that stuff sort of shoved over in the corner when in reality it is. All of those things say something to your viewer about who you are as a company or a church event, whatever it is that you represent. Now, in the world today, um, design goes beyond just buildings, right? So now we have right. web presence and we have all these things. Um, let's apply the same question. How, how do people underestimate still today the importance of having clean-looking websites? And also, and this is probably the one that's evolving pretty quickly, clean social media presence as well, like a streamlined, well-put-together uh, social media and website presence. Well, I tell everyone to think of design as a conversation. So think of conversations you've enjoyed versus ones you haven't. Generally, the ones you enjoy are your conversations that you've enjoyed are where it's clear what you're talking about. You're able to communicate clearly and connect with the person. You're listening to them. They're listening to you. So 
everything you design has to have that dynamic. So from a social media perspective, it should be clear who you are. It should be clear how you view or value your viewer. Um, the purpose of what you do should be clear. So for instance, for a personal social media presence, you can be a little more erratic in showing what you're interested in, but you'll generally see that everyone's Instagram or Twitter starts to have a thread of what is important to them. So you can look at their profiles and be like, oh, this person's really into politics, or wait, this person really loves music. So the same thing with a company is you have to let people know like what is important to you, what matters to you, and what are you trying to do with that in the world. So in today's culture, everybody's interested in like what are you doing good for your community. So you need to show those things. But I've also found that because of social media and web presence, we've gotten really impatient with with obtaining information. We want it quick. So if your website, for instance, isn't clean and neat and clear, people are gone. If they can't find what they want in the first minute, they're probably going to click on and move to something else. So I I just met with a client in San Francisco, and they were asking about having me sort of consult everything. So I, I did like a blind shopper, you know, secret shopper kind of experience for them. I couldn't find where they were at based on their website. Now I could put it into Google and find the address. And I said, if I were someone, if I couldn't find your address on your website, I'd probably move on and go to a different place for this. Because there's plenty of other people offering things similar to what you offer. So just that simple fix would be an example of something they could do with their website just to get people there. If that makes sense. I mean, so it does. It can be a little overwhelming to think of everything, but I would say step back and go, what is the simplest presentation we can give that is still dynamic? And that probably sounds a little talking out of both sides of my mouth, but keep it dynamic but simple. So, um, and look at all the companies and people that are, in your opinion, the most successful at what they do. Look how they design their website. Look how they design their properties and emulate some of that. There's, you know, saying in the art and design world is there is no new thought. So everything that you design and create is based off something else you've seen or learned. So it's perfectly okay to look at companies, churches, musicians, whatever, and see like, what are they doing on their website that work? What do we like about it? And sort of pick and pull and make translate it into what will work for your customer or your viewer. I went a little over beyond that question, but sometimes I get excited about this stuff. No, that was perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that you mentioned earlier was, you know, considering social media as part of the design experience. And I don't think that's something that people normally think about. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the importance of including, including social media in the design experience? Right. So um, an example that I think works really well for this is a client of mine I've worked with called Catalyst. They do conferences. I think they're really good at engaging people with social media and their app ahead of time. So sort of start to set the stage and warm the audience toward the challenge and the conversation that's going to happen at the event. Um, So they actually begin the teaching. They begin presenting their information way before you ever show up at the event. So that alone is so important because by the time you show up at the event or for translating that to another group or client, by the time someone shows up at your store or shows up at your church, they're already warm to who you are and what you are. 
and they're receptive and they probably came as a result of some of that interaction or experience that happened ahead of time. So instead of them walking in cold, you're having to build trust, you've already started to build trust ahead of time. It's got them thinking, it's got them engaging with questions. So when you sh when they show up and you ask them to do something, interact with a message that's being given at an event or a church or to buy something or to invest in something, they've already sort of taken a lot of the journey that you're not doing a cold sell, you're doing a very warm, if not hot sell at that point in time. Um, so stepping back into that, when you take that approach, you have to realize that social media is the thing that begins the design interaction. It's not something that just happens until you show up at wherever you want to show up. So and, and generally, right now, especially in younger groups, we're finding that we're all very concerned with things having consistency and us being able to know what something is. So think of the best product like with Apple or, you know, certain restaurants that are your favorite, like you consistently have an experience that you sort of know, no matter where you go, if you're at one of those places, it's going to look a certain way, feel a certain way, you're able to get a certain interaction that you want. But that all starts at social media because that's where people are starting to set the expectation of what you'll see when you show up on site. Does that, that answer your question? Or Yeah, it does. Yep. Okay. Whenever you're working with, you know, a client, you know, what are some of the things that you do to discover the kind of experience that you want to create, whether it's for a conference or in a lobby or whatever it may be? Well, you know, generally start with having a conversation with the client, uh, sort of, hey, what is it you're wanting to set as your goal here? What kind of event is coming up? Or what kind of thing or space are you doing? Um, what do you hope? to get out of it? And then what do you hope the people interacting with you get out of it? So starting from those two places of what does the client hope to get out of it? And then what do you hope your viewer, attender, customer gets out of it? And sort of finding where those two things overlap and designing to that. Because I found that entering a conversation, a relational sort of interaction, to me, often engenders trust. It often engenders people interacting at a deeper level than you might have previously thought. So it's, and I know not every transaction is relational in the sense of some businesses are not very relational, mm -hmm. but it, they can have a relational element that makes it feel more comfortable and engaging for the person who's literally there to buy a, a set of cards or a burrito. So even think of the restaurant where they just welcome you. Like I think of Moe's, it's always welcome to Moe's. Um, that's a simple thing, but it's engaging you. Chick-fil-A, my pleasure. Um, is a phrase they say. It's a constant sort of reiteration of like, I'm enjoying that you're here, spending your money on our product, helping us make money, but I'm enjoying you. It's my pleasure that you're here, you know? So that would be examples of things that are sort of going a little bit out of bounds on your question there, but I tie that back into what you're at is that you find what it is the two sides are wanting, the client plus the customer, and then you design to where that overlaps. And then you also sort of have to think of like where it over, where does it not overlap and how do we design an experience that helps bring more overlap between what the customer wants and what the client wants mm -hmm. so that there's as much mutual benefit as possible. Um, and that's hard to do sometimes because 
sometimes the client just has something set in their mind. They want it to be this way, or they have a budget that's unrealistic, um, or they have a time frame that's unrealistic. And you have, I'm constantly sort of having to design to that and have conversations about resetting an expectation for them and trying to find something that works from a design perspective that touches base with some of the dream that they had, but puts it into a reality that will work and actually be effective. That makes sense. So. Mm -hmm, sure. What, <clears throat> so as you're going through and, and, and working with people, you can create lots of things, but if it doesn't engage the audience, um, it's, it's worthless. Like it, 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 if you're not playing to the audience that right. you have, it, 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 it's no good. So what do you do to create an experience that draws people in and engages them? You know, I try to play to some of the things that we know to be important to that audience. And generally, the clients that I'm working with have already researched a lot of who their customer is, their audience is. So I'm able to pull from that information. If they haven't, I can still pull from, like, the general understanding of humanity and the things that matter to us or pull from what's happening in society currently that would be interesting to them or pique their interest um, and design something that actually gets them to have a feeling, which creates and sort of cements a memory around what they felt and also the content of change or a shift in belief or an understanding or a new way of seeing something. It's those kind of things that I've Found that will get people to engage. It's something that looks interesting, but then beyond that, actually has substance that is interesting, um, um, that's beneficial. That it, you'll see a lot of installation art that's just like, well, that's cool, but what does it mean? And and in the art community, I found that a lot of times there's this spirit or air of we don't want to explain it. The whole point is people to figure it out, and that's true in a lot of ways. But sometimes when you're designing for events or spaces or something where you have a customer or an audience that's coming through, they don't necessarily have the luxury to stand there for 30 minutes and contemplate this abstract piece of art. So I often say is I give them just enough information to keep it interesting and just the right amount where it's a little bit less than what they need so they can still fill in some of the gaps for themselves. Everyone loves to look at something and get the point. So I try to make it easy for them to get the point. So then it actually helps them feel smart or that helps them understand that they are, are creative too because they're able to see something creative and translate it into a dialogue that we've sort of set up and they see the connection. It helps them value art in general more after that fact too. So it's a little bit of manipulation, but that's what all of my marketing and advertising is. It's manipulating information to engage people to make them respond to it in a certain way. And I don't think all manipulation is wrong in the sense of like, because you're not manipulating them to hurt them, manipulating them to challenge them, to get them to engage with a concept or an idea or a product or a brand in a certain way. And um, you're giving them the choice to do it still. It, it sounds uh, like you're so talking you want to... No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, you're sort of trying to set up a, an interaction that lead, that most likely leads to the result you want. But most interesting stuff that happens to me on these projects is a result that we didn't expect, but ends up being better than what we were going for. You know, that's the stuff where I can say, clients, that's the thing you got to remember. Sometimes you have to allow sort of 
the moment to happen and see what comes from it. You plan as best you can, but you leave the space for things to shift and adjust based on how are people interacting with it. Do we need to reset the course in the middle of it or let it play out? Like they're not interacting with it the way we want it, but we're getting something that's so interesting that it's actually better than what we hoped for. Can you give an example of that? Back to your question. Can you give an example? Um, Yeah. So, for instance, we I did a project for uh, a large fast food chain, and this was for an event they were doing, and they were trying to sort of portray their commitment to the environment. So we did a series of art installations regarding their view of being more sustainable as a company. And with any kind of fast food chain, there's a lot of waste that's happening in materials, cups, styrofoam cups, whatever. So, for instance, they were using, basically recycling some of their materials and creating functional things out of them. One example, they were creating pens out of recycling the plastic and the styrofoam and stuff from their materials and their stores all over the country. Another one they were creating with a composite, like these things you could sort of build your own bench out of. Um, But for instance, the one, they took the pens and just sort of, we created an art piece to sort of show and highlight this new pen to say, hey, here's one way we're taking something that would be trash and creating it into something useful. And it was supposed to be an art piece that people viewed. But however, for some reason, people got the idea this was a come and take a pen sort of display. So little by little, the pens were being taken. But in reality, that wasn't what we hoped for. We were hoping more for like an art gallery experience. But it became a little bit more of like a marketing tool, sort of giveaway experience. But then all of a sudden, people had these pens and started asking where they get more of them. Because they were like, oh, this is a cool pen. It's made out of styrofoam and plastic. And wasn't what we intended. The art piece was, quote, unquote, destroyed in the sense of little by little, you started to see the understructure. It started to not look as cool. As it, once. it looked sort of like a porcupine before. Then it started looking like a sad half clock chicken by the end of it you know but in the end it was like that's not what we intended that's not what we wanted but it actually worked out great and the client was able to see like oh, well that's cool now people have the pen you don't have to tell people they're cool they already have them they've used them and people that didn't have pen for the event also had pen that could take notes and learn more anyway so it worked out but that's a, a very simple example there are more complex ones but for sake of your time, I won't back you into what the whole plan was versus what happened and how it played out over the six months after it, you know, so. I love that. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and, uh, yeah. and go back to what we were talking about a little while ago with design and layout um, of, of rooms. And so what I wanted to talk to, to ask you is how do you use the layout of a room? So the, just the, the, the layout of how the room is set up to communicate a message and create an experience. Because I think that's really interesting, particularly in, in the world that Caleb and I live in, in churches, with church right. lobbies, like church lobbies and entryways. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I've heard a lot of, of big businesses, so Ritz-Carlton and places like this, implementing stuff in their lobbies. So talk to us about how you use the layout of a room to communicate a message and to create experience well first of all i'll start with the under my principle the layout of a room matters because it communicates something it communicates something about the intent of the room what the room is supposed to be used for how it's supposed to be used 
It also creates an interesting dynamic. It can be visually appealing as well. Now, I'm not actually an interior designer, so often, you know, an interior designer may have way more input about the specifics of how a room is laid out, but I understand how people experience it and think through that lens, and then an interior designer would interpret that. Um, so, for instance, since you said you guys are with churches, I was just with a church, and I noticed that their lobbies and entryways were sort of, like, dark, like the doors were dark, the paint color was dark, there wasn't a lot of lighting, it was sort of separated in chunks, so it didn't feel very inviting, and that's the space where you're inviting someone into the church. And then once you cut into the auditorium, there was a wall around the entire back of the auditorium that was sort of had a functional purpose, which was to keep from distracting people sitting in the pews. But in reality, what it did, it feels like a block, a barricade to you engaging or going in. It sort of was a visual barrier. It sort of stopped the movement. So it ended up creating a lot of clutter with people not knowing where to move. And in reality, during the services, it becomes a distraction. Even though you can't see what's happening, something about that wall makes people feel like you can't hear them. So they're talking louder than would they realize the pew is right in front of them. So that layout, it started off with a certain function, and it wasn't a bad function. When it played out, it didn't work because I don't believe they were thinking through how people would use the space. They were more thinking through just visual sight lines. And so the people sitting in the pews wouldn't be distracted by people coming and going in the back. But in reality, the distraction was worse than what they planned for. So I would think of that space as going like, how do people move through it freely? How does it stay open and feel inviting and feel warm? So you think of color choices and you think of layout. So your entryway shouldn't be cluttered with furniture to where it's hard for people to move through. You also don't want it to be sterile to where there's no place for people to land. So you got to find the balance in between of like where spaces for people to comfortably stop and connect if they need to, but nothing that creates a stop point that would be something that would clutter the space or keep people from moving in or out. And then when you're in the space too, beyond just an entryway, let's say it's a an auditorium or even like staff office space, creative space, like what allows people to move through the space easily, to connect with each other easily, and that isn't distracting. So what doesn't divide us up. So if you're a church and you say we need to work together as a team, but all your spaces are very divided up and they don't aren't conducive for working together as a team, it's sort of hard to ask people to do that. When your space doesn't allow for it, therefore as a staff, you aren't able to even do that. And that energy, like I'll often go to churches, for instance, and their staff creative spaces where they're creating or coming up with the brainstorming, their sermon series, their events, is literally like a sterile room with a marker board that's stained and the dry erase stuff is on the wall and it's metal folding chairs at a beat up, you know, folding table. And like, what if this inspires creativity or warmth or comfort that would translate into what you then start to think about or design? And I also say like, so that layout of a room has to be something you yourself would want to be in if you're expecting to ask someone else to want to be in it. So that's an overview. So like specifically, if it's an auditorium, what allows people to sit and use the auditorium as a function, which is to sit and hear a message, but what allows them to connect with each other? Because that auditorium, that service is more than about hearing a message. It's about 
connecting and realizing they're in a community of people that have similar beliefs as them. So how do you create spaces that allow them to connect that don't create a distraction, that allow people to move freely through the space where um, there's no clutter, um, there's no hazard, so to speak, things that are blocking the space. You're like, oh, we want them to connect a big sofa, but it makes it where people can barely walk through the lobby, you know? So, um, so there's, I could spend two hours talking just about layout, but that gives you an idea that sometimes you have to think through all the ways that space will be used and don't just think about visual cues and how people would see it, but think of how people experience it in the sense of a relationship connection, the ability to move through the space, um, how they experience from an auditory perspective, like does it create a sense of reverence and quietness or does it sort of tell people to talk and chat to where it ends up being a sound distraction, the sound base run through the space because there's nothing absorbing sound, there's no rugs, there's no soft furniture, it's all hard wood, metal, stone, that, that affects everything. So you think of the layout in the sense of how does this affect sound, how does it affect movement and people moving is probably one of the biggest things people underestimate in the sense of the layout of a space or building our property is how do people actually move through the space how should they move through the space and does our space allow them to do that or does it restrict them or distract them from doing that so therefore it becomes a an uneasy or a cumbersome interaction where they're like oh that place is so hard to navigate i'm just going to go somewhere else you know Oh, that church is so cluttered and dirty and dark. It just doesn't feel very happy and peaceful. So I'm going to go to some other new church that's more bright and airy and modern because it, it actually matters how they feel in the space. So I'm a little bit uh, long-winded sometimes. So y'all feel free to cut me no, off. That's I care about this stuff, so I get a little passionate about it. No, that's good. I think that's something that um, you know I don't I don't think about a lot is how the, the the traffic flow of you know the space and the building that you're in and making sure that they're actually moving them in the direction that you want them to go and not just you know a random direction and everything right and just to sort of segue since you're talking about people moving the, the space is one of the things i often tell my clients and it tends to be the thing i get the most resistance from is when it comes to layout and planning a space is design your property, your building, your space, your event, whatever it is, design it so that a person could come, attend, and leave without ever having to speak to you. So can they show up, find where to go, move to the space, sit where they need to sit, get the product they need to get, check out, leave, do whatever it is without ever having to have a, an in-depth interaction with you, other than like a, hey, thanks for coming. Because a lot of people just, don't want to connect that way. They're inter so I often say design your space for an introvert, an extreme introvert. How would they be able to move to the space? Would they have to step out of their shell and speak to you? And churches, for example, want people to talk to them. That's one of the things people fear the most about going to churches is I'm going to have to fill out a card and they're going to call me or they're going to show up in my house. I'm going to feel guilty and I don't really want to talk to them. I just wanted to come and see how I felt in church again because I haven't been in 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, so the layout of the space should be done in such a way with signage so that they don't have to speak to you. Um, now, that's a generalization. There are some kind of environments where it's necessary for people to speak to you, and then you want to make it clear as to how and where they would speak to you in a concise way that makes sense. You know. So. Well, Aaron, switching gears 
a little bit, we want to ask you about your creative process. And so, you know, whether it's working for um, yourself on a project or getting ready to work for another client, kind of walk us through your creative process from beginning to end. Okay. I'll answer this question in two parts. The process for working with a client versus my own personal process. So when working with a client, the process generally starts with conversation. Just uh, getting to know each other. I want to build a rapport so that I enjoy working with the person. Hopefully they enjoy working with me. We build a level of trust because we're both going to be dependent on each other in the project. I'm going to need information from them. Um, they're going to need information from me to get approved. And I want to let them know they can trust me to do my best to make sure the money they convince their company or event or church, or whatever to spend, that it's a good investment. Because um, often they're convincing someone on their team, hey, we should spend this money. I want to make sure that they did that in a good way, that <laughs> the people are later saying, thank you so much, that was money well spent. Um, from there, it starts to talking to what are their goals, what are their desires, what is it we're working toward, a space, a painting, a art installation, and just really have a lot of hopefully meeting in the middle and figuring out like what is the plan, what is the goal, what does this need to communicate, what does it need to say, so that the expectations are pretty clear from the beginning about what this is going to be, what it needs to be, um, and then go from there. After that, I do research and look for inspiration, insights into things that people would do for stuff similar to this. Sometimes the client has come with something that inspired them to say they wanted to do this, either something they've seen of mine in the past or someone else's. And then I figure out from there, like, how can we accomplish this within the framework we have, the space we're in, the time frame we have, um, the budget there. Often the budget is a big limiting factor. How do I sort of justify to them spending certain levels of money on different aspects? And then I start the creation process. So often for me, I'm collaborating, working with other artists, designers, um, graphic designers, printers, fabricators, and sort of figuring out, okay, what are we making? What are the schematics around it? How do we make it? How much time do we need? What materials do we need? If we have a deadline, can we make that deadline? How do we stay on schedule? So it's actually very creative, but it's very technical in the sense that it's a lot of people managing and time management um, to get these larger projects sort of up and afloat and working. When it comes to my personal process, it's way more fluid. So this is where I get, I'm a split brain person. I'm very like rigid and logical, but I'm also sort of fluid and erratic, like some people think of when they think of artists. So on my personal thing, I sort of think through things and play around and I might work on three or four different paintings at once and try different things out in different colors, start over. Sometimes I'll have a very clear concept in my head of like, okay, like I sort of want to do this and think this would work. And then I sort of do sketches, underdrawing, sort of some blocking out with paint, sort of feel like how does it look in general, what materials that I want to use for mixed media application. If I'm doing some kind of mixed media imagery, what do I need to have printed? What type of material? And then I literally just get my hands on it and play with it. Um, I have a general framework of what I think the end piece needs to be or should be or what I want it to be. 
but it's much more fluid and changes on the fly. Just like the conversation for me, art is sort of like worship. It's something that I learn from. I I hear, you know, and feel challenged in the process about things I need for myself and truths that I need to sort of take on and sort of live out in my day-to-day life. So it's much more of a introspective thing versus an external relational thing when I work with clients. Does motive art influence your creative process at all? It absolutely does. So if I'm working on a painting, that's something I probably feel the most skilled in. So that allows me to be way more fluid in my process because I'm very good at manipulating materials. I understand the materials. I know the difference from working on wood versus canvas versus paper versus panel. I understand mixed media and how to affix things and layer things. So I'm able to like do that in a much more sort of fluid, sort of free flow kind of process. But if I'm doing something that I'm either not as skilled in or something that it's just a lot more of a a list of things that have to be done to get it done. So for instance, like a sculpture. If you're doing a still sculpture, I don't personally fabricate those. I have have someone who fabricates them, but it's figuring out like what material, what type of steel or metal or wood do we need? How big can it be? Like how much weight can it withstand? When does it have to be moved? And how does it come apart and go together? How do we transport it? So it's a lot more technical sort of planning. So that mode of creation for me puts me more in my sort of planner, getting on a spreadsheet, figuring out cost of all the materials, what's the overall cost to me, then how, what just price can I justify to a client based on the value of it as art and as the underlying cost that I have to cover and time for fabricators. So that one I feel a lot more like a, a business person than I do when I'm painting. When I'm painting, I feel more like an artist. So when I'm in some of the other creative modes, I feel a little bit more like a consultant that sort of, or a project manager that is, has a creative vision, but I'm sort of managing all these different aspects to get it to come to life. Sure. How does your your faith, how does your theology impact your creative process, if at all? uh, Well, I I don't see how it wouldn't, um, because when you're creating art, it's really just you coming out. It's you know, it's, it's telling people about yourself. It's a real part of yourself, whether you like it or not. And, you know, my art has been informed by my theology in several seasons of my life. And my theology has been informed by my art in seasons of my life, too. I sort of feel like that I was created to be creative. And that language is something that I respond to. And I feel like that's something that God uses to communicate with me. Um, so therefore, it's a inherently spiritual process for me. I can't say that true for every artist, but I've never really met an artist that says that creation, creative process isn't, at least on some level, a spiritual process for them. And for me, it's very much so. A lot of my paintings uh, sort of talk about and reveal my spiritual journey, my how my views have changed over the year. A lot of the art has helped my views change, helped me come more in alignment 
with the story of love and Christ and challenge that question of like, what does love require of me? What does that mean? What does that look like? And I'm visual, so I sort of try to do a visual depiction of what that looks like for me and that balance between my sort of logical, practical self and then that spiritual side of myself or the balance between my selfishness as a human versus the selflessness that's required of me. So a lot of my paintings have a two-tone sort of thing. They have a structure to them and then they have a very free-flow, fluid application of color in general. So it's so intricately entwined in my creative process. I don't really know if they're separate things that, or where one ends and the other one begins, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I love it. It's like, to me, I'm like, what a great way to get to pray or get to process and wrestle through your salvation and wrestle through your theology with getting to do something fun and finger paint, basically, and create something at the end that you can look back at and remember and be like, it's in a way creating altarpieces of like that painting represents a lesson I learned, a truth that was really cemented for me, a shift in my theology, a shift in my ability to trust who God is and who isn't. Um, and then the added benefit is that sometimes it can live past that and encourage other people and realize, that, oh, wow, that thing I learned from can actually help someone else learn too. And how beautiful is that, that the story doesn't end with me. Um, so. I love that, that I have it. Sometimes I don't understand it. I'll do a painting and be like, okay, that I don't understand what that means or why this challenge or question is coming up through this piece. And what does that mean about my relationship with God and others? And and sometimes it is, I may never realize what I learned from it. But other times, like months later, I'll be like, oh, now I get it. You know, um, I feel blessed that I get to have this mode of interacting and working through my faith and my theology in a way that has like a tangible product that I can look at and touch and be frustrated with sometimes or be in awe of sometimes. You know, speaking of that, you recently authored a book called Love as an Art Form. So tell, tell us a little bit about the book and kind of what led you to want to write a book. Okay, well, a couple things. So the last the last several years, I've, I guess it's about nine or ten years ago, I prayed a prayer that the Lord shatter any paradigm that I hold that isn't actually based on your truth. And he did a lot of that processing through art, and it was a wonderfully horrible experience. It was beautiful at times, painful at times, challenging at times, scary. Um, but in that process, I started just writing down things that I was learning and thoughts I was having. And my pastor, I attend a church here in Atlanta called Buckhead Church, and it's part of North Point Ministries, and our pastor is Andy Stanley. And he was doing a sermon series several years ago. And the whole series, I don't remember the name of it, but the the underlying question that was sort of informing the entire series is what does love require of us? And individually, what does love require of me in every situation and every moment? And I started saying, you know what, that's the story of Christ. Christ has called us to a, a life of sacrifice and love. So what does that actually look like in my daily life? What does that look like in my art, my creativity, and my work? And I started asking myself that question every day. 
what does love look like? And often the paintings and the art were a space where I could really delve into that question and like wrestle with it. And it got to be where I asked that self, my question that felt sort of throughout the day in so many situations to where now sort of like, I don't even like actually ask the question. It's just this, it's the spirit in which I try to approach life. Like what does love require of me? Love requires a lot of me. Let me start with doing the next right thing. And so I've been writing about a lot of that over the years. I've been doing art. And so many of these paintings were the pieces that helped me sort of cement some of the truths around what does love require of me about the sense of love to God and God loving me, loving myself, and then loving other people. How are those three different dynamic relationships connected? What does that look like? What does that mean? And during the election, or the beginning of it last year or two, I started going, you know what? Social media is so negative. I just want to put some positive stuff out there. So I have friends on all sides of the spectrum from, you know, conservative, liberal. And I was just like, oh, the one thing I know I can say that people can't disagree with is the idea of love and being more loving. So I started just putting little quotes out from some of my writing just to sort of encourage people. And a friend of mine said, hey, like, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always thought that would be fun, just like so many people want to write a book. Um, I've had people ask me or say that I should write a book based on my story. But I got to a place where I was like, I don't know if I want my story there. I'd rather my story be mine. So maybe there's some other way I could write a story or put a story out to the world that would be connected to mine, but not necessarily be super revealing about my personal details. And she was like, hey, I wish you put all these quotes in one place. I'd love to have them just, you know, even just for myself. And you put them in a Word document or something. And I was like, well. And she's like, you can even do this as a book. Like, say you wanted to do a book. And I was like, uh, that's it. That's, I want to do this as a book. And I wanted to, I've always sort of wanted to do an art coffee table book to sort of highlight some of my work and explain some of the pieces and, and help people engage with some of them. And I thought this would be a good combination to use the paintings that help me understand love more deeply that I use to wrestle through the topic and pair those with. So it was 30, it's a 30 day challenge called sort of a love emotional, which I know is cheesy, but I'm sort of cheesy. Um, and, and there's 30 days split into three sections, 10 days for love God, 10 days for love self, and 10 days for love others. And every day has painting, a painting or several paintings paired with the concept or the question that I'm presenting. So there's some kind of quote or statement about love, and then there's some kind of challenge. Of, for instance, a challenge might be, hey, actually schedule time to do something loving for a person you know that needs love. The next challenge, five days later, might be schedule time. Think of someone who you don't really like or agree with. How could you show love to them? And they'll actually calendar a time to do that so it gets done. Um, so it's a practical application, but it could also just be an art coffee table book if someone wanted it to be. But I wanted to tell the story of love and put that out there and connect my life to that story um, in a way that challenged me and challenged other people. So that's sort of how the, in a long-winded way of answering, that's how the book came about. Um, it was scary to do because, you know, all the doubts of who am I to write a book about, uh, but, you know, like I'm still learning some of this and I don't have this down pat. And 
Like how can I tell people they need to be loving toward themselves when I don't always love myself and I don't want to be a hypocrite and all that. But I just sort of push through it and say, hey, I'm talking about the ideal of love and I am a person who strives to even really touch that ideal and live it out. So I can just talk about that in the book and present it in a way that I'm not saying I have it all together. I'm just presenting simple statements and quotes about love and then just simple questions so they can make the process theirs and the process and not just be me telling them what to do or how to do it. One question that we always love to conclude our interviews with, Aaron, is what are you learning right now? You know, right now I'm learning that um, fear and jealousy are the antithesis to love and trust. Um, I'm encountering that in my professional life. I'm encountering that in my personal life as well. And just realizing that fear is something you choose. And I mean, obviously, there are the certain things in this life that we should fear, like we should fear snakes that are trying to kill us or whatever, you know. Um, but the fear of pain in relationship or the fear of not getting a project that you want or the fear of what if I don't make enough money to pay this or that or what if people don't like me or approve of me is something that really gets in the way of you loving yourself. It ultimately means it gets in the way of you loving others. And then jealousy is I've never heard of something good that comes out of jealousy. So like professionally, if I'm jealous of someone else's success, in a way I'm saying I don't think they're worthy of having something great, which means I don't love them enough to rejoice in them having something great or experiencing something good. So I've personally been using my art right now to challenge that notion of myself and face into part of me that really needs to change, which is I need to be less fearful and worrisome and I need to not be jealous, but I need to celebrate and love others in a way that seems otherworldly that I can't even explain, but that's hard and that's a choice. I'm realizing love is not a feeling, it's a choice. Often it's talked about as if this feeling, but it's not, it's a choice. You have to choose to love others in every moment because your selfishness gets in the way or life gets in the way or all kinds of things get in the way if you don't make an active decision to choose love over fear and jealousy. So that's probably the biggest thing I'm learning right now. And the other thing I'm learning is that you can always shift and adjust and redirect your path in the sense of I practiced law initially, and then I came back into doing creative work and painting, which shifted into a lot of the design and consulting work. And I'm in a season where I wanted to paint more, so I'm allowed to shift my business in a way that can allow me to paint more and to express that way and sort of approach what life is presenting me through my creative outlet. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's perfectly okay and normal. And I don't have to apologize for it and try to fit in the box of the world I came out of and the corporate world. So that's the other, like, less deep thing I'm learning, I guess. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a really hard season, but it's been an amazing season of self-discovery and being challenged and pushed to really, even during the book, it's really made me go, okay, like, 
I'm putting this out there into the world, which means people are going to look at me. I need to make sure that I'm at least trying to be loving um, every day. And so it's sort of a source of accountability for me as well. So, Aaron, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. If people want to find out uh, more about you or see your art or even purchase the book, how can they do that? So if they want to just follow me in general, my tag on all social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything is Aaron Lee Harris. So it's A-A-R-O-N-L-E-E-H-A-R-R-I-S. Um, my website where they can buy the book or prints or even originals is AaronLeeHarris.com. And then if you want to follow some of my design and consulting work, the website is called thedesignchurch.com. Um, yeah, if they want to reach out and connect to me through any of those, there's contact pages on both the website, or they can direct message me on social media. I keep up with all that stuff fairly well. I'm not the best at it, but I'm pretty responsive. So I love interacting with people and following them back and seeing what they're doing. And, um, I'm so curious. I like to see what people are doing all over the country and the way they're being creative or what they're doing in their company or their church. So I love interacting with people in that way. So please reach out, connect, um, and let's be social media friends at the very least. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Aaron. Caleb, what did you learn from our interview with Aaron? I think one of the biggest things I learned was this idea is of that your design can influence someone else's experience you know where they walk where they go what they experience and really just taking that into play and whenever you're trying to create something because whether or not you realize it or not most of us are trying to create experiences for people and just taking into careful consideration just the design behind it all drop those bombs c mason boom sauce now, if you enjoyed this episode, you want to make sure that you don't miss our next episode. And the best way to make sure that that happens or that doesn't happen is by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. Um, don't miss one because then you'd be a loser. You can show your appreciation or let us know what you're learning about by leaving a rating or writing a review on your podcast player on your podcast app or by showing us some love on social media. Um, share that junk. Thanks so much for listening to the Learner's Quarter podcast today. We'll see you next week. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.